Hi all, warmest greetings and welcomes to the latest instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales' premier spare room, cat-accompanied true crime show, seeking out and recounting often obscure, unfamiliar or long-forgotten crimes from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these tales is myself as ever, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, and once again it's fabulous as ever to have you guys joining me for the episode we're more so than ever right now. I hope that as you do, each of you guys are all good and well. Now there isn't too much I can add about things at the moment really, apart from stay safe everyone and chin up. We will get through shit times such as this. A maxim that reminds me of one of my favourite ever quotes, which is long attributed to Winston Churchill. If you are going through hell, keep going. It's true enough that is guys. And really what else can you do except try to maintain as much normality as you possibly can throughout the most testing of circumstances and times that we're all facing. It's what I'm trying to do here anyway. We get more than enough reminders of what's going on around us without me harping on about it anyway. So I think the best thing I can do is business as usual. So normality and for myself it is maintained to for some degree Fortunately, I'm able to break it up a bit right now as I can still go out to work. Normality here on The Enthusiast, though, is me bringing you a case of my choosing each week. Hopefully light-hearted where it needs to be. You know, the odd shamble of bollocks here and a top shagger Ken Barlow there. You know the score by now. No difference. Kudos for the feedback that I've received concerning the previous episode of the show, where we looked at the horrific crimes committed by Roger Severs in the episode The Leftover List. What about Severs, eh? Stupid and a proper unlikable character or what that. I was quite amused to see that the majority of the feedback about it have been in the form of debates as to carpet in the kitchen, yes or no? It sounds like a question of the day on Alan Partridge's North Norfolk Digital Show. Well, for the record, my opinion, no, it's a minging idea. Kitchen floors get wet, they get dirty, you drop shit on them. Why on earth would you want any form of carpeting on there to sponge all of that up? But overall, I gather that the episode went down quite well with you folks, so I'm glad that you liked anyway. Cheers also are going out to both returning and new Patreon supporters of the show this week, and I am playing a bit of catch-up here so from the past couple of weeks, so bear with me. Checking with Nancy and Bill Hooper. GVB, Luke, Fallon, Diane Farrell, Charlene Clement, AJ Vieira, Victoria Howard, Tracy Ginn, KH, Jennifer Trebon, Jade Robinson, Gina Ferenzi, Deb Hewitt, Bridget Burner, and Michael Beckhurst. Apologies because I did say Michael last episode, but I mispronounced his name there. And apologies if I've mispronounced anyone else's. Your support of the show is welcomed and it means the world, folks. It really does. And I've also decided that Patreon funds from the show from this month are being entirely donated equally between a number of local charities to myself that have been hit and are feeling the effects of the coronavirus. There's so many to choose from, isn't there? But you start with what you see closest to you, I always think. Now there are some voted for bonus Patreon episodes already out for all of you guys as I've shared a few to help pass the time. So you've got some extra content that might just distract you from wanting to put your other half through a mincer and another episode does come out monthly for subscribers. With the latest one, bonus episode number 27 called Enough Rope was released just a couple of days ago. 
I'm trying to strike a balance between respecting those who contribute to the show as subscribers, because I'm not taking that for granted, not at all, and offering a bit of entertainment for everybody, because we all need a bit of a distraction right now, even for a little while, don't we? So for the past couple of weeks here on the show, I've been utilising some of the back catalogue of Patreon episodes. As I've said, I've still been at working, and whilst like everyone, trying to deal as best with the current situation as we all are, and you do what you can. But hopefully busy times are levelling out somewhat now, and next episode, I'm hoping we can actually get on with this bloody multi-parter that I've planned for this series. In past weeks, we've already met David Bradley and Roger Severs from the back catalogue, and here I'm using yet another this week. Now wanting to release bonus content for everyone led me to putting up a poll in the show's Facebook discussion group for you guys to vote a few episodes. And the episode this week is one of them, alongside Retribution and Ambleside. Now I kind of suspected it would be this one chosen, as whenever I've put the same poll option up to choose an episode when I release one on the show's September birthday, it's this episode that's been right up there and just pipped the past couple of times. I also really love hearing these past episodes and giving them a bit of a shake off, as for some of them it's been quite a while, and I'm pleased for you guys to hear them. And I've already said it, but I shall again. Deepest thanks from me to all subscribers to the show for your understanding and encouragement to share stuff with all of you guys. And the case concerned in the episode this week as voted for, it was a right find when I first read it. It was quite remarkable one that I'd never come across before I stumbled across it tucked away in a book on my library shelf. It is a bit of a complex case. Well, I say a bit, it's a very complex one. It's got more twists and turns than Sting and his missus shagging, but it's an extremely interesting case nonetheless. It goes back to the start of the 1970s, to the city of Portsmouth down on the south coast of the UK in the county of Hampshire, and I'll not give any more away because I'm sure that as it progresses, you'll understand the title. The episode this week does contain descriptions of crimes and events, plus descriptions of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So please use your discretion as always whilst you're listening in, guys. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for this week we look back at a case I've entitled The Portsmouth Casanova Murder. The Hampshire city of Portsmouth, down on the south coast of the UK, is a seafaring city long considered to be the home of the Royal Navy, with a population of more than 200,000 people. Now some great pop trivia quiz bullet points for you for this week. Portsmouth is the only UK island city. It's the only city whose population density exceeds that of London. That's the density, not the population. And in 1917, it was the first UK city to open clinics for free treatment of VD. The first female centrefold ever to display full frontal nudity in a magazine is believed to have been of Portsmouth-born Marilyn Cole, who also holds the distinction of being the only British model to be Playboy's Playmate of the Year. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle practised there as a doctor. Author Charles Dickens was born there. And other famous names to have been born or have lived there for a time as well include author of The Invisible Man, H.G. Wells, former British Prime Minister James Callaghan, Olympic medalist Roger Black, and Mick Jones, founder of the band Foreigner. 
bloody foreigner coming over here wanting to know what love is. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. There are a stack of great facts about Portsmouth that I discovered whilst researching that I didn't know, and I myself used to live relatively near to there for some years when I was in the forces many years ago. I used to go shopping and for nights out there, and I remember Portsmouth as being a nice, lively place. This week's tale will show you just how lively it was indeed back at the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s. It was 3.20 in the morning of Friday the 5th of November 1971 and PC Paul O'Donovan of Hampshire Police was on his night shift making a routine patrol around the area of Portsmouth's Purbrook Heath Road when his attention was drawn to a blue Austin 1100 car that was parked up in the tree-lined car park of a cricket pavilion at the end of the road that was a well-known spot for courting couples. Not being a perv at all, PC O'Donovan would not normally have paid too much attention to a couple shagging in the car, but this car stood out from the normal cars one would see parked there at the time because the windows of it weren't steamed up. The car was cold, it was silent and had been there for some time as a layer of dew lay thick and heavy on the roof. Peering through the window of the car, PC O'Donovan's night shift suddenly went from sleepy and routine to full on and he knew it was to suddenly get a whole lot longer. Because sat in the driver's seat of the vehicle was a dead man with a cylindrical wooden handled knife sticking out of his chest. A murder investigation led by Detective Superintendent Harry Pillbeam was immediately launched and the dead man was identified through a check of the registration number of the vehicle as being 35-year-old Peter Richard Stanswood, a heating engineer and co-director of a thriving pedalo business that operated from the nearby Isle of Wight and who lived in the city at number 28 Ninian Park Road in the Portsmouth district of Copner with his 32-year-old wife Heather and the couple's two children, 11-year-old Tina and 8-year-old Charles. Early that bonfire night morning, murder squad detectives had the sad and unenviable task of calling around to the Stancewood home to inform Heather of her husband's death, but at that crucial early stage of the investigation, also in an attempt to hit the ground running and to try and establish Peter Stancewood's final movements and whether his wife may have been able to shed some light on the possible identity of, or motives of, her husband's killer. Stunned and near incoherent with the shock of this sudden news, all his distraught wife could offer, and this by all accounts was with apparent reluctance, was that she thought her husband Peter's death may have had something to do with one of his mistresses. Yes, that's right, the plural, mistresses. Detectives listened incredulously as Heather Stancewood, through her tears, went on to provide them with a list of names of more than two dozen women that Peter Stancewood had had intimate relations with, shall we say, including two who had previously borne him illegitimate children and one who was at the time pregnant with his child. Heather told them that the previous evening she thought he may have stopped and spent the night with this particular woman, 20-year-old Wendy Charlton, who lived a short distance away in the Taswell Road area of Southsea. He hadn't been at home with his wife and kids that evening, as Peter Stancewood had that Thursday night dropped his wife and children off at the cinema 
where they'd watched the sound of music, while he ostensibly went off to make the hills alive with some sounds of his own. Heather and the children had made their own way home following the film, and Peter hadn't been there when they returned, nor did he return that evening. Now according to Heather, this was quite commonplace. It wasn't unusual for Peter Stanswood to spend a night or two each week staying at the home of one of his mistresses. Indeed, it was such a regular occurrence that when asked, even both two Stanswood children could confirm this. But it was to turn out that Heather Stanswood had actually made an understatement here to detectives, because Peter Stanswood, it transpired, had even more mistresses than she knew about or suspected. At a press conference held by Murder Squad detectives the day after the murder, Detective Chief Superintendent Cyril Holdaway, the head of Hampshire CID, outlined Peter's active love life and his two known mistresses, and told the assembled reporters, Two of these other women had children by him. He was still seeing at least two of them, and was with one of them the night he was murdered. There could well be more affairs that we don't even know about. He was quite a Romeo. We want to trace any other girlfriends he may have had, and will treat their information in confidence. Several other women were to come forward as a result of this appeal, and the final established figure police were left with and the following would seem impossible. I mean, even the mighty Ken Barlow surely couldn't be as top a shagger as this, but was to be no less than 66 different women. It was established that there were a few he was seeing regularly, including Wendy Clifton, who, was, as we said, was expecting his baby. There were other women that he saw semi-regularly, several other women on a very casual basis, and even more on a very, very casual basis. And on top of all of this, he still found the time to be a diligent worker as a heating engineer, putting in full-time days, as well as around the time he spent at the thriving pedlo business that he co-ran, which whilst he was there, he wasn't averse to chatting up a pretty holidaymaker or ten that he met at the beach. Now you'd want some of what he had for breakfast every day, wouldn't you? Imagine him in this bloody lockdown. Wow. Heather's estimation about her husband's whereabouts the previous evening, upon inquiry, had turned out to be correct, and when police spoke to her, it was confirmed by Wendy Clifton that Peter had indeed been with her that Thursday evening, but not for all of the night. During the course of the evening, he'd telephoned one of the mothers of one of his illegitimate children, Linda Redding, and according to Wendy, had left her house just before 10pm either going on to Linda's house or going home to Heather and the children, she wasn't sure. Linda Redding was spoken to and confirmed that she had indeed spoken to Peter on the telephone that Thursday evening, but only as a matter of routine in a trivial query over their daughter, Kelly. He'd never been around there after leaving Wendy's. So with the exception of his killer, Wendy Clifton was the last person to have seen Peter Stancewood alive but she was quickly ruled out of the inquiry. Police were already beginning to realise that what should have been a comparatively simple-to-solve case was rapidly turning into such a tangled web of adultery involving a cast of so many that it almost seemed that half the population of Portsmouth might have had reason to want Peter Stancewood dead. The case eventually involved some 2,642 statements being taken, some of these having to be taken more than once when it became apparent that obvious lies had been told the first time and during the course of the investigation, 
more than 20,000 people were spoken to. Many of these fabricated stories given in statements were for the simple reason that if Peter Stancewood had been a swordsman of the highest calibre and in and out of beds like a bloody gardener's fork, even his exploits had been dwarfed by an army of housewives who took extramarital relations in the city of Portsmouth on what amounted to little more than a production line. But they didn't get any complaints about this from their husbands because it was these husbands who were the ones acting as lovers for other housewives also. Yeah, Pompey was the place to be back in the day. So under circumstances such as this, it wasn't too strange really that many of the persons interviewed whose names cropped up in the investigation were reluctant to tell all. In many cases, police were forced to interview couples in separate, catching the men whilst they were out at work and their wives whilst the men were out of the house or undertaking interviews in out-of-the-way locations, away from prying eyes and neighbourhood gossip. But as in all cases where the victim is married, suspicion immediately fell at first upon the person closest to the victim, in this case, Heather Stancewood. Now although it was established that she'd been at home with her children, and couldn't actually have been present at the murder, she could still have been the one responsible, the driving force behind it, with the actual killing being carried out by one of her lovers, perhaps for insurance purposes. Because yes, Heather Stancewood too was putting it about everywhere, having about two dozen lovers of her own, and that was according to her own statement to police. Thinking that if you can't beat them, join them, these lovers ranged in age from a 16-year-old babysitter of the family to a 60-year-old Stanswood family friend, and the most recent of these lovers, ergo the one of primary interest to police, was Kenneth Joseph Fromant, a 39-year-old gas conversion worker and married father of two, who lived at Hillary Drive in Crowthorne in Berkshire. It was established that the same Kenneth Fromant did have a criminal record, having served three years of a five-year prison sentence aged 18 in 1950 for shooting another man in the leg during a gang brawl outside a London pub. Although this indicated to police that here was a man with a tendency to turn to brutality and violence, it didn't really make him any better a suspect than any of Heather's other lovers, nor of the lovers or ex-lovers, their husbands and partners of everyone that Peter Stanswood was or had at one time been having a bit with. That's a hell of a suspect pool, that, isn't it? It's like the bloody cast of Ben-Hur. Further, when he was spoken to by police, Fromont claimed that he'd been at home in Berkshire on the evening of the murder. Now, this could neither be proved or disproved at the time, as his wife and children had been away but there was good reason to believe that the affair between Fromant and Heather Stancewood had never been something taken very seriously between either party anyway, and had in fact ended some two months before Peter was killed. It was also established that Heather Stancewood had at one point filed for divorce proceedings against Peter, back in 1961 when his first illegitimate child was born, but they'd reconciled and the divorce never proceeded. Since then, as we've said, he hadn't changed his ways, but rather had taken literally dozens of mistresses over the years, many of these with Heather's full knowledge, and indeed, with her approval. She could hardly complain when she was doing the same thing, a classic case of, if you can't beat them, join them, I suppose. And no one was seemingly off-limits either. 
A prime example was represented by the 32-year-old attractive wife of Peter Stanswood's Pedlo business partner, Ken Thompson, Elizabeth, who was also Heather's oldest and closest friend. The two women had been best friends for many years, first meeting in the mid-1950s when, after leaving school, they'd worked together as machine operators in a Hampshire parachute-making company. The two had remained friends after Elizabeth had met and married Ken Thompson in 1959, and when Heather had met Peter and they'd married just a year later, the women's husbands became firm friends too, so much so that they'd gone into business together a number of years later in the mid-1960s. Not long afterwards, the Thompsons' marriage had faltered, and they'd gradually become estranged after this. But long before then, Peter Stancewood and Elizabeth Thompson had certainly been engaged in sexual relations with each other. Heather had definitely known about the affair, or possibly Ken Thompson knew about it as well, because he may have also have been having sexual relations with Heather himself. Swapping partners like bloody football stickers, eh? If only Jeremy Kyle had been about back then, eh? He would have had an absolute bloody field day of all this, wouldn't he? It was in Elizabeth Thompson's statement to police that a mention of gas conversion workers other than Kenneth Frommant was made because she volunteered that in 1970 she had entered into a sexual relationship with one of them following a serious fire that had gutted her home long after she and her husband had become estranged. Later that year, when either he or she had got bored, she'd severed ties with the man whose name was never revealed to avoid domestic complications and had swapped him for another gas conversion worker a man named Arthur Gavin gas fitting was obviously the profession to be in in the 70s guys now Arthur Gavin was the brother-in-law of one Kenneth Frommant and at least until September 1971 Arthur had also been the lover of one Heather Stancewood before he'd finished with her and leaving her in the arms of Ken Frommant took up with Elizabeth Thompson Apparently there was never any hard feeling or jealousy about any of this and seemingly Heather and Elizabeth exchanged confidences and lovers almost on a casual basis. It seemed to police like the whole of the city of sin on the south coast of England was at it with everyone other than just their other half and such complicated histories involving adultery and shenanigans between hundreds, possibly even thousands of persons in the Portsmouth area was the most striking but also the most troublesome characteristic for police in attempting to solve the murder. Each of these histories were of vital importance though because as the investigation progressed it was with increasing certainty that it was one of these liaisons or affairs that had led to Peter Stanswood's violent death and equally that finding that vital significant strand of the sordid web would lead investigators to the door of his killer and gas conversion workers seemed to be the key because out of the hundreds of women whose names cropped up and were interviewed, a very large percentage of them admitted to having adulterous relations with gas conversion workers, of whom it was found that at times there had been as many as a hundred working in the city. But aside from this, progress was slow. Apart from establishing that everybody in Portsmouth seemed to be nobbing everyone else, and as a result having a list of potential suspects longer than the waiting time for a Glenn Miller comeback album, police only had two other clues to go on. 
The weapon that had been used to kill Peter was found to be a distinct, slender Japanese paper knife with a six-inch blade, and Peter had been stabbed no less than seven times with it, leaving traces of blood all over the handle and all over the interior and steering wheel of the Austin. An important clue of equal importance was the discovery during forensic examination that some of the blood found on the handle of the knife and on the steering wheel of the car belonged to someone other than Peter Stancewood, who was of blood group O. It belonged to someone with a totally different blood group, and the samples would later be established at the police labs as APGM21AK1, a very rare group that was found at the time in only 14% of the population. But the source of the Japanese paper knife proved pretty much impossible to trace. There were literally thousands of these such knives that had been imported into the country, and no fingerprints by Peter Stancewoods were found on either the steering wheel or the interior of the car itself. So, they did have this rare blood group which could be used to help narrow down the suspect pool remarkably, although frustratingly, it was more than a decade away before the breakthrough of DNA, wasn't it? The autopsy hadn't been particularly helpful either, with cause of death being pretty obvious really. Seven vicious stab wounds that had pierced his heart, his lungs and his liver. Now the post-mortem did find traces of phenobarbitone in his liver, which could have indicated that Stancewood was connected with the drug scene, but no evidence of this could be found despite extensive inquiries. There was also still no known clear motive. By all accounts, Portsmouth was a city that had free sexual reign at the time, and Peter Stancewood was not found to have had any serious enemies, not even amongst the many men whose wives he'd had sexual relations with. No one seemed to have benefited from his death. The Stancewood family were comfortably off, and it was thought unlikely that the reason was to collect on his life insurance, as they were quite decent position. And in such an atmosphere as I've described, it seemed unlikely that anyone would have been so involved emotionally as to commit such a brutal murder out of jealousy. As I've said, most of the husbands and wives knew exactly all of their other half's extramarital adventures and didn't seem to be phased or even care too much. They were too busy with their own. It was all just game on. But if spouses and partners didn't care before, than they did now, because the murder of Peter Stancewood had brought all of this kind of shenanigans out into the open, and it couldn't just be glossed over anymore. Most of the people involved were all on the mature side, in the 30s, 40s, or even older. An open knowledge of committed adultery could be very damaging both socially and professionally to such persons. It was considered that there was probably upwards of a thousand people in Portsmouth, who were unnerved and who didn't sleep well at all during the investigation into Peter Stancewood's murder for fear of what would come out. For as many people knew about their other half's actions and couldn't really say anything, there were some whose other halves didn't know and they desperately didn't want any of this coming out. And the investigations went on for a long time, despite what seemed for a while an important break that came less than a week after Peter's murder which we shall hear about following a short word from this week's sponsor of the show, which once again is the new book from crime author Kathy Reichs, A Conspiracy of Bones, and which is out now from Simon & Schuster Publishing. Do you remember the US TV procedural series Bones, with Emily Deschanel and the guy who used to be Angel in it? 
If you are a fan, then you may already know that the show's based upon the series of books featuring author Kathy Reich's straight-talking forensic anthropologist Temperance Brennan. And the latest in the series, A Conspiracy of Bones, is out now in hardback, ebook, on my own personal choice, audiobook form, from Simon & Schuster Publishers. Fans have devoured Kathy's Temperance Brennan series for many years now, making her a number one New York Times best-selling crime author. And her latest offering, Conspiracy of Bones, finds Temperance mixed up in a complex, chilling case involving a faceless, handless murder victim and its connection to the 10-year mystery of a missing child. The case becomes more and more complex at each turn, as everybody seems to have some secrets, and Temperance finds herself drawn more and more into a case that gets more twisted and much darker as it progresses. It's pace and shocking plot twists like this that has kept Kathy at the top of her game and her fans gripped for many years. And a conspiracy of bones is no different. You crime fiction buffs out there will love it. Get yourself onto Amazon or through any good high street or online bookstores today to grab yourself a copy of A Conspiracy of Bones, available now from Simon & Schuster Publishing. We shall now continue with the Portsmouth Casanova murder. The important break the police had been waiting for began just a week after the murder of Peter Stanswood with an incident in the Castle Tavern pub on Summers Road in Southsea. The occasion being a darts match against a team in the same league from the nearby Royal Exchange pub. Peter Stanswood was a regular drinker in the Castle Tavern and had himself been a member of the darts team and indeed he would have played in the match that night had he been alive. During the evening there was a prize raffle held and the name on the winning ticket drawn out by bar staff was none other than Peter Stanswood. Now everybody from the Castle Tavern present was of course horrified at this because what are the chances of that? but the horror was exacerbated when Peter Stancewood stepped forward and claimed his prize. Let me explain if that's boggled your mind. It wasn't of course the dead man, but a roofing engineer of the same name from Purbrook who played on the darts team of the Royal Exchange pub. Now he was somewhat older than the murdered man, but he looked very much like him, and he even frequented one of the same public houses as the dead Peter had, the Moncton pub in Copner Road, very close to where dead Peter had lived. This living Peter Stancewood was himself a respectable father of three teenage children, who was in no way connected with the vast circle of subscribers to goings-on in Rumpy Pumpy Portsmouth, and for months afterwards, his wife was troubled by a stream of condolence calls from people thinking that he was dead. So this then gave police a theory. Was it a case of mistaken identity and the wrong Peter Stancewood had been murdered and the roofing engineer was the real target? What strengthened this theory to police was the fact that in the weeks preceding the murder, a sizable number of anonymous telephone calls had been received by the Peter Stancewood living in Purbrook. Usually, the male caller had asked for Peter Stancewood and had then said nothing more in the conversation, but had still remained on the end of the line as his breathing could be heard before hanging up. On other occasions, the caller had said nothing at all. When he was spoken to by police, the roofing engineer Peter had no idea of anyone who bore him a grudge or who might have wished to harm him, and he wasn't involved in anything unlawful or immoral. 
but he accepted the police theory that if the murder had been one of a case of mistaken identity, then the killer may try to correct his mistake. For many weeks afterwards, Live Peter then carried around with him a direct contact telephone number for the investigation incident room and kept a discreet watch over his shoulder, also being discreetly shadowed at all times by a member of the investigating team. Now thankfully there was no attempt on his life, but there was one significant occurrence. From the day that Peter Stancewood had been murdered, no more anonymous telephone calls had been received by the Peter Stancewood in Purbrook. He was provided with an ex-directory new telephone number, and the mystery of the anonymous telephone calls was never solved, totally unconnected to the murder, by the remarkable coincidence of him having the same name. Back to the gas conversion workers then. They still seemed to be the common denominator wherever police looked, and pursuing the investigation led them to one of the hotspot meeting places for these and adventurous-minded housewives, the Mecca Ballroom on Arundel Street in the Landport area of the city. These workers were doing a specialist long-term residential job at the time in Portsmouth, and so were being well paid and were more than happy to flash the cash on nights out, where they found a very willing and responsive audience in the housewives that they met either while working or on nights out. The Mecca Ballroom was a particular hot spot, and it was whilst interviewing the hundreds of women who frequented here over the course of the inquiry that a particular lead was found in the form of a housewife named Isabel Morgan, who without realising it would provide one of the vital keys that led to police solving the case. By this time, almost nine months had passed since the murder of Peter Stancewood. One afternoon in July 1972, Isabel Morgan, who had been named in other statements, discreetly met police away from home so her indiscretions wouldn't filter back to her husband, and was being interviewed by murder squad detectives Inspector Ernest Wolfe and Detective Constable Roger Hurst. During the course of the interview, Isabel revealed that on the night of the murder, She'd been visited at home in Portsmouth by her lover at the time, a gas conversion worker named Ian Dance. Now this name struck a chord with detectives because they recognised the name as one of the people who had already been interviewed and further, they recalled that Dance had denied being in Portsmouth on the night Peter Stancewood was killed. Dance was immediately picked up and taken back to police headquarters and when he was confronted with a statement of his former mistress, he changed his story, admitting now that he had indeed been in Portsmouth on the evening of the murder. He'd lied to police because he didn't want his wife finding out. He'd driven there in the company of another gas conversion worker named Kenneth Fromont. The same Kenneth Fromont who'd been on the list of friends, lovers and acquaintances that Heather Stancewood had provided police with two weeks after the murder. And when Fromont had been interviewed at the time, as we've said, he'd also denied being in Portsmouth, claiming that he'd been at his home in Berkshire. Now, according to the statement of Ian Dance, it turned out that he had been in Portsmouth that evening after all. And although there appeared no connection between Ian Dance and Fromont, apart from that they worked together, police discovered that Fromont had at one time been the lover of Ian Dance's wife. I know, yeah, right? If you lose track throughout all of this, which I'm probably easy to do, just think everybody is shagging everybody else here. On Monday, July 17th, 1972, 
Kenneth Fromont was taken to police headquarters in Cosham and now questioned for a second time, and when he was confronted with a statement that had been made by Ian Dance, he then admitted that he'd lied in his initial statement and had in fact been in Portsmouth on the night of the murder. He had, he said, spent the night with Elizabeth Thompson. Now this was denied at first by Elizabeth Thompson when she was brought in and interviewed about his claims, but she did now change her story to admit that she'd had sexual relations with Fromont on several occasions, which was a big jump from the one time that she'd admitted to previously. Both Fromont and Thompson denied any involvement with the murder of Peter Stancewood, but a sample of Fromont's blood was taken as was coarse, was examined at the police laboratories, and was found to belong to group APGM21AK1, the identical group to the blood that had been found on the steering wheel of Stancewood's car and on the handle of the knife. Now whilst this was not conclusive in itself, because although it was rare, other people could of course have had the same blood group, and as we've said, this is long before the discovery of genetic fingerprinting. Kenneth Fromont was, however, the only person with blood group APGM21AK1 out of all of the persons who'd been tested up to then. So although police couldn't prove his involvement in murder at that time, the bed-hopping gas man with a criminal record and the rare blood type went immediately to being the prime suspect in the murder of Peter Stancewood. And police suspicions were strengthened further only a short time later by what the senior investigating officer, Detective Superintendent Harry Pilbeam, was to describe later as a godsend, an absolutely colossal piece of luck. In spite of the eight months plus that had passed since the murder, police managed to find the car that Kenneth Frommans and Ian Dance had travelled down to Portsmouth in, a Ford Anglia, in the yard of a garage in Bittern in Southampton. And incredibly, garage records showed that it had not been driven since the day after the murder because it had failed its road test upon being returned. Ian Dance's car had been in for repair at the time and he'd been given the Ford Anglia to use for the few days that his own car was in the garage. As the car hadn't moved in all that time, samples of soil from the tyres were taken, and were checked against soil samples taken from everywhere that Dance had claimed to have been with the car. By process of elimination, the samples of soil taken from the tyres of the vehicle were found to be almost identical to samples of soil found at Purbrook Heath, the scene of the crime. But even with this, the blood group and having a prime suspect, the case was far from complete. There was still no plausible motive and no evidence that Kenneth Frommont had ever even met Peter Stancewood. Plus, although Heather Stancewood had listed him amongst her list of lovers, Frommont had denied it and claimed that he didn't even know Heather Stancewood. With not enough evidence to charge him, Frommont was released from custody. Four months later, he was once again fetched back to police headquarters in Cosham, where this time he changed his story yet again, and now admitted that not only had he known Heather Stancewood, but he and she had had sexual relations over a period of time in 1971. He countered suspicion of him by telling police that he'd had the same with a large number of Portsmouth housewives also, and that none of their husbands had turned up dead, 
so why should he have chosen Peter Stancewood as a victim when he had A. never met him, and B. had only such a fleeting affair with Heather Stancewood that he could scarcely remember it? Doesn't he sound a catch, eh? Police didn't have enough to counter, but they did have three major points against Fromont in evidence. There was the car in which he travelled to Portsmouth Inn on the night of the murder, the soil samples from the tyres suggested strongly that the vehicle had at some point been in the parking area in the Purbrook Heath Road, there was the blood on the handle of the knife and the steering wheel, which had been found to belong to the same rare blood group as his own, and only two months before the killing, he'd been having it away with Heather Stancewood, the victim's wife. But police still had the greatest difficulty with the lack of motive. If Froman was guilty, then he had stabbed to death a man that he'd never met before, for what? Or had it really been a case of mistaken identity, and did Fromont think that the man he was murdering was the roofing engineer Peter Stancewood of Purbrook, the one who'd been receiving the mysterious telephone calls? It was a possibility that was investigated thoroughly, but there wasn't the slightest evidence that Fromont had ever met or heard of him. He was, as we've said, just an unfortunate man who had the same name as the murder victim. No, it seemed clear to police that there had been no mistake. Someone had wanted to murder the Peter Stancewood who had been killed, and Fromont, with no motive of his own, was the person police suspected had actually carried out the killing at the instigation of the person with the most plausible motive. And the person with the most plausible motive was... Heather Stancewood. Yet it took more than three and a half years after the murder until May 1975, that the Director of Public Prosecutions came to the conclusion that the case against Kenneth Fromont and Heather Stancewood was sufficiently established and issued orders to police to instigate criminal proceedings against them. On the 19th of May 1975, Detective Superintendent Pilbeam went to the office of the manager of the North Thames Gas Board in London, where Fromont was working at the time, and took him into custody. Told he was being arrested for the murder of Peter Stancewood, Fromont replied stoically, What is there to say to that? Fromont was taken once again to Cosham, where that afternoon he was formally charged with murder. Also joining him there that day was Heather Stancewood, who by that time had changed her name by deed poll and resumed her maiden name of Pridham, and who was subsequently also charged with murder. Neither made any statements in response to this nor did they speak to or even look at each other. Committal proceedings against Kenneth Fromont and Heather Pritham were due to take place on the 12th of July 1975, but three days before that, on the 9th, Heather Pritham suddenly requested a meeting with a solicitor and barrister who duly met with her. In the presence of both, Heather then made a startling confession to something which she said she'd kept as a secret for almost four years. Oh yes, there's another twist in this tale. Heather Pridham then sat down and told her legal counsel that her best friend of more than 20 years, Elizabeth Thompson, had confessed to her that it was she and Kenneth Fromont who had murdered Peter Stancewood, and Heather then proceeded to describe exactly the events of the evening of the murder. According to Heather, Elizabeth Thompson claimed that she'd telephoned Peter Stancewood on the day of the murder and had made an appointment with him to meet him at the Purbrook High Road car park, presumably for the purpose of sexual intercourse. 
Stancewood had, surprise, surprise, accepted this invitation, and when he arrived, she and Kenneth Frommond, Elizabeth's current lover, were waiting in the car in which he and Ian Dance had travelled down to Portsmouth in. Dance had been dropped off earlier at the house of the housewife that he was having his own affair with, so he wasn't with them, and Thompson and Frommond had then proceeded to join Peter Stancewood in his car. There'd been an altercation, and Frommond had received a wound to the arm from the Japanese paper knife that he'd brought with him. He'd regained control of the weapon, and had then proceeded to stab Peter Stancewood to death with it. Following the murder, Thompson and Frommond had then driven to Mrs Thompson's home in Waterlooville, where the pair changed into clean clothing, disposed of the bloodstained clothing in the nearby rubbish compound of a block of flats, and Elizabeth Thompson had stitched up the cut of Frommant's arm with a needle and thread. And the reason for the murder? It appeared to be that Elizabeth Thompson was actually in love with Peter Stancewood and resented his affairs with other women, but he didn't feel the same way. Frommant seemed to have been drawn into the whole debacle without actually being too sure or too clear as to what he was doing, a puppet, because he was infatuated with Thompson. Elizabeth had not long after this sacked him off as a sex opponent, finally divorced her well-out-of-it husband Ken in 1973, and had gotten herself a new lover, Peter Jackson, who she went on to have a child with in early 1974. Following the statement by Heather Pritham, Elizabeth Thompson was brought into Caution Police Headquarters for questioning, but burst into tears and declared the whole thing to be a tissue of lies, after which she was permitted to leave. On July the 12th, committal proceedings against Kenneth Frommant and Heather Pritham went ahead as planned, before stipendary magistrate Sir Ivo Rigby at Havant Magistrates Court, but ended in committal for only Kenneth Frommant. Heather Pritham was ordered by Sir Rigby to be released, as she was found to have no case to answer. Meanwhile, because it made no sense for Frommant to have acted alone and have killed Peter Stancewood, investigations into the claim made by Heather Pritham that it was actually Elizabeth Thompson who'd arranged Peter's murder continued, and on August 5th, 1975, Thompson was again arrested by murder squad detectives. She was charged with murder the same evening, and on September 12th, 1975, was committed to stand trial with Kenneth Frommant for the murder of Peter Stancewood. The trial began relatively quickly, just over a month later, on October the 21st, 1975, at Winchester Crown Court, with Mr Justice Talbot presiding. Both Thompson and Frommant issued pleas of not guilty to murder, and the 17 days that the trial was to last were filled so much with testimony 108 separate witness accounts, in fact, concerning the illicit sexual activities of a large cross-section of Portsmouth society, that even Mr Justice Talbot was moved to remark just how much sexual promiscuity and adultery were rife within some social groups. Much of this testimony was in the form of anonymous statements, with names suppressed by police to stave off domestic rows and to protect people's marriages as far as they possibly could. But overall, a very clear picture emerged of the almost legendary sexual exploits of gas conversion men and Portsmouth housewives. Even Ken Barlow would have tipped his hat to him. And although he wasn't a gas conversion man, the sexual exploits of the murder victim were also made clear to the court. 
It was suggested at one point that he could have had up to 66 mistresses at one time and was confirmed as having 18 at the time of his death. Yet the accused, Elizabeth Thompson, forced to admit that she'd had relations with Stancewood when questioned in court about her statement, claimed that he was quite poor in bed, saying, Peter was like a bull at a gate, ten minutes and it was all over. He had no idea how to satisfy a woman. Now from the sounds of it, ten minutes was probably the only allocated amount of bloody time that he had to get around everyone that he was seeing. This claim was, however, supported by some of his lovers who gave testimony and refuted by an equal amount. Denying any knowledge of the murder, Thompson claimed that on the night Peter Stanswood was killed, she'd been at home when the doorbell had rung at about 11.15pm and she'd answered it to find Heather Pritham and Frommant on her doorstep. Once inside, Heather, she claimed, had asked if Frommant could stay there for the night which she agreed to, thinking, she claimed, that it was because Peter Stancewood was at home that evening. She claimed that Frommant had stayed the night there, although they'd not had intercourse, and it was only the following morning, once Frommant had gone, that she'd heard news of Peter Stancewood's death. She told the court, I drew my own conclusions on what happened that night, only because I'd heard Heather say on a number of occasions that she would like to get rid of Stancewood. I wasn't going to say they'd been at my house because I thought they'd been at the murder. The first time I revealed what I knew of that night was to my sister the night I was charged. Heather Pritham broke down in tears twice over the two days she spent giving evidence. Although she'd admitted her own affairs, she refuted claims by defence counsel John Platts Mills QC that she deliberately enticed different men to bed by lounging around naked in the house and that she had sex with a different man each night, although she did admit that at the time of the murder, the house was like a brothel, before describing to the court the events that she told her legal counsel on the 9th of July of that year. She furthered this by saying how whilst having drinks in a Gosport pub some time before the murder, in company with Fromanton Thompson, she'd been resentful about Peter's love child with Wendy, and the fact that he'd recently had Wendy to stay in the Stancewood home while Heather and the children had been away. Elizabeth, she claimed, had suggested that she was better off with Peter dead, and that she knew someone who could do it for a thousand pounds. Through subsequent times in the pub, as well as in work, this was a suggestion that was raised constantly, and on one occasion in a pub when it had been raised, Frommant came back from the bar and said to Heather, Is that it? Do you want it to happen then? Heather claimed that she'd said yes because at the time she meant it and claimed that as discussions went on, she knew Thompson and Frommant were planning to kill Peter on the evening of November the 4th. Elizabeth Thompson, she said, had told her what had happened the following day, telling the court. She said she phoned up Pete and said she wanted to see him. He asked her if she was in trouble and she said she was and wanted to ask him something about her husband. They arranged to meet at Purbrook Heath and when he got there, she and Ken Frommant went up to the car and she made an excuse that she was cold so she could get into the car. She got into the back and Ken got into the front. Peter asked her who he was and said to Lizzie, what's going on here? And then Ken stabbed him. She said Peter's dying words were, it isn't fair, it isn't fair. 
When asked by Mr. Calcutt why she'd not gone to the police there and then, Heather replied, After what they did to Pete, I thought, it's not going to happen to me or my children. I kept my mouth shut. She then broke down in tears and shouted across the court at Thompson and Fromont, They done it, not me. They're liars, the pair of them. So two women, both of whom had been charged with the same crime, one of whom had found to have no case to answer, each claiming the other was party to the murder. But the common thing that they both agreed upon, Kenneth Fromont was the other guilty party. Come on down, you horny gas man. Kenneth Fromont, giving evidence, first told the court that the behaviour of the gas conversion workers in Portsmouth was commonplace, saying, it's a well-known fact that those on the gas crew teams have married girlfriends amongst the female population. I've never heard of them having any difficulty with husbands. It's been my experience that they aren't really interested in their wives' affairs. When asked by Mr. Calcutt about his own relations with different women, Fromont admitted that he'd never wished to pursue any kind of further emotional relationship with any of them. Each affair was a purely physical thing. On to the next, no bother. If this was the case, then when asked why he'd lied to police in his initial statement, but had subsequently agreed when presented with a statement of Ian Dance that he had been in Portsmouth that evening, he explained, Well, it was for Arthur's sake and my missus. We decided not to say anything to the police about the women because of our wives, and I didn't want Arthur to know I was visiting Liz Thompson. She was his girlfriend. Well, it wasn't very nice, was it? No, you aren't very nice, are you, Ken? But Fromont denied everything else. He admitted multiple affairs, but denied being responsible for murder, having taken part in the planning of it, and denied that the paper knife used to kill Peter Stancewood was taken from his own garden shed. Then, on day nine of the trial, Fromont provided the court with a sensational moment in a trial that was sensational enough to begin with. On the witness stand, he turned vault face and changed tack and now admitted, Yes, I was at the scene of the murder. I lied in my original statement. I was there and I was cut in the arm as Mrs. Heather Pritham stated. However, I could not reveal the truth before because I wished to protect the true guilty party, Mrs. Elizabeth Thompson. It was she who wielded the knife, and not I. He went on to explain how he and Elizabeth Thompson had driven to the car park, and he had waited while she got into a blue Austin 1100 car with a man that he'd never seen before. He continued, While she went to the other car, I waited in the Anglia for two or three minutes. I then heard this noise. It sounded as if someone was being given a bear hug, a crushing noise as if someone was crushing their chest. Fromont demonstrated this noise to the court by placing his lips against the microphone before continuing to say that he then rushed out of the car and over to the Austin, thinking Elizabeth was being attacked. Fromont said, I opened the door and the light came on. Mrs. Thompson was kneeling on the seat facing the driver's side. As the light came on, she said, He's dead, he's dead, he's dead, three times, but very hysterical. I saw this man slumped behind the steering wheel at an angle, looking towards me. He was perfectly still. I got into the car and just burst into tears. I wasn't crying, I just couldn't control my eyes really. I just kept saying, 
Are you alright mate? You'll be alright. I didn't know what I was saying. I was panicking. I tried to lift him over the passenger side because he was right behind the wheel. I was talking to him all the time saying, You'll be alright mate, but I had to be careful because I could see this piece of wood in his chest. It just sort of hit me then that this man was dead. There was no point going to hospital. I felt his pulse and it was instinctive, but there was no movement. I asked her why and she said, I hated him, but he was a good chap. Arthur Gavin gave testimony to the court that his brother-in-law Fromont had confessed the murder to him only days after the killing when Arthur had approached him because he suspected that Fromont had been sleeping with Elizabeth Thompson, who he still was with also. Arthur claimed that Fromont had told him something serious had happened, but that he couldn't tell him exactly what it was there, and made his way to Arthur's car, where after making a point of checking it for bugging equipment, proceeded to tell him the whole story. Arthur told the court, He said that he'd felt Stancewood's pulse, and had told Elizabeth Thompson, If he isn't dead, he will recognise you. He asked me if I wanted to know how it was done, and I said no. I told him, Why did you do that, you bloody fool? I love you like a brother. He then told Arthur that with Stancewood out of the way, they were now free to get Stancewood's Isla White business concessions. Arthur went on, He said that possibly sometime he could put me up as manager, and we could go and live on the island for the summer period. But I said no, I wouldn't accept blood money. Now the matter of the motive for Peter Stancewood's killing was never clearly established for the court. Revenge, life insurance, business concessions, jealousy. But there were indications that Elizabeth Thompson had been more jealous of Peter the putter about her than his own wife Heather had been. She wanted him for herself because she was in love with him, a feeling that apparently wasn't reciprocated. There were also suggestions that Stancewood had been murdered because Elizabeth Thompson either blamed her own affair with him as the root cause of her marital breakdown, or bore a grudge against Stancewood for her belief that he'd led her husband astray into the arms of another woman. And the possible motives kept coming in, it was suggested that Stancewood was worth more to Heather dead than alive, with life insurance policies to be collected on him to the tune of as much as £40,000 being suggested. And it was even suggested that Kenneth Fromont had murdered Stancewood purely out of jealousy over his success with women, a theory that gained particular popularity with foreign press covering the sensational trial, and who built up a kind of hypothetical competition between the two men, based on the number of women with whom they'd managed to commit adultery. Because Fromont hadn't been able to rack up as high a score as his rival, he'd killed him in a fit of jealous rage. But as we know, this was contradicted by the fact that Fromont had apparently never before in his life laid eyes on Stancewood up until the night of November the 4th, 1971, and if he didn't know the identity of the man he was murdering, then how could he be jealous of his exploits? The foreign tabloids invent shite as well as the UK ones do to sell newspapers, don't they? And you'd be surprised that they would need to, really, as the whole case is eye-opening and sordid enough as it is, isn't it? Fromont's confession about the events on the evening of the murder and to Elizabeth Thompson's culpability in the actual stabbing 
didn't make the impression of him being a simple bystander on the jury that he was hoping for, however. On the 14th of November 1975, Kenneth Joseph Fromont and Elizabeth Thompson were found guilty of the murder of Peter Richard Stancewood. Now, oddly enough, the jury apparently found more evidence of Thompson's culpability over Fromont's because he was convicted with only a majority decision of 10 to 2, while she was convicted unanimously. Both Thompson and Fromont were sentenced to life imprisonment by Mr. Justice Talbot, who during sentencing remarked, I do not think that the court has even yet heard the whole truth as to why you committed this crime, and as you, Fromont, said, it was all for nothing. Fromont received his sentence impassively without changing expression, and Thompson herself showed little to no emotion, only appearing to be in tears as she was led away to begin her life sentence. Both were to subsequently appeal their convictions, but these were refused, and each went on to serve a substantial number of years in prison before being released in the 1990s and fading into obscurity. Following the convictions, the depositions of all those involved, all of the housewives and gas men who'd been questioned, were burned in the yard of Cosham Police Headquarters, much to the relief of countless people I can imagine, who then kept their sordid secrets. And Mr Justice Talbot was right, there were a number of questions that were never satisfactorily answered, and it was almost certain that the court never heard the full story. Neither Thompson or Fromont were ever to tell any more, each sticking to their stories and continuing blaming the other for full culpability. It was never established exactly when and where Peter Stancewood had received his invitation to his death in the car park. And there was also the question of the knife wound that Fromont had received. How had he managed to lose control and then regain control of it? The traces of phenobarbitone that were found in the liver of Peter Stancewood were never satisfactorily explained either, and no evidence of him being involved in drug dealing was ever found. But it's likely, though, there was someone having as many extramarital affairs as he was at any one time. He was probably taking some sort of drug. He must have needed to, because he must have been constantly knackered from doing all that. Following the trial, Heather Pritham had said to reporters, a lot of terrible things have been said about me during the trial, but I am not as black as I've been painted. Everyone round here has been very helpful. My friends and neighbours have been wonderful and are standing by me. I just want to be allowed to settle down with my two children and start life all over again. I don't want to discuss the case. Now much was made afterwards as to whether Heather should have remained charged, if not with murder, then as an accessory to it. I mean... She had kept Thompson's story a secret from police for a number of years and had only come forward and told the truth when she was herself charged with murder to save her own skin. She was portrayed in court as offering so much sex at her home that it was like a free brothel, had been relatively emotionless at Peter Stancewood's funeral, whereas other mistresses of his were reported as being near hysterical with grief at it, and had benefited handsomely from the insurance on his life. Had Elizabeth killed Peter Stancewood so her best friend would benefit? Possibly, yes. Or had Elizabeth acted off her own bat, as in the tale that had emerged in court, that she had been like some sort of Lady Macbeth character? No one thought this more true than the father of three of her children, Ken Thompson. 
Following the conviction, in an interview with a Sunday People newspaper, he was quoted as saying, Liz had an evil influence over Heather and arranged her many sex adventures. Ken Fromont is just a sucker who happened to be the right bloke at the right time for what she had in mind. So, did Elizabeth Thompson wield the knife or did Ken Fromont? And how much did Heather really know? And what was the real reason for Stancewood's murder? Was it a case of primarily so it would benefit Heather? Was it a proper crime of passion and a case of, if I can't have you, then no one will? Or was it even revenge for misplaced blame on her marriage collapsing on the part of Elizabeth Thompson? The answers will most likely never be known, the full story having by now been long buried. Any of the direct players involved in the tale would be today very advanced in years if they are still even alive. So there are a lot of questions left to ponder with this pretty unreal story, eh? It's got Netflix documentary written all over it, hasn't it? I know it's a hard case to keep track of about who was having a bit with who. As I said before, just think everyone was having it away with everyone else and you won't go far wrong. Now I pitied the children of the Stancewoods and the Thompsons in all of this. I mean, what kind of lives must those kids have had? Maybe it was kept from them to some extent, but they must have realised that at some point in their lives that no one can have that many uncles or aunties. The Christmas presents just don't tally up, do they? It sounded a right sordid mess and the selfish pleasures of the flesh and forbidden fruit led to someone being brutally murdered Seven children, if you count Frommans also, being left without a father, and four children who lost their mother, Elizabeth having had a fourth child in the years following the murder with the new partner, Peter Jackson. So lesson there, be happy and cherish what you've got, and never ever trust the gas man. I hope that you guys have found this episode both informative and interesting, even if it is one that's a bit eye-opening. A fascinating tale though, isn't it? I'd be thrilled as ever to hear your thoughts and views concerning the case. There's a Facebook discussion group thread, so you can do that just right now in there if you like. Or you can get in touch through any of the show's social media, wherever you want to, folks. I'll always happily hear from you and get back to you. There are also several links to further reading concerning the case in the episode show notes this week. So that's about it from me for this week's guys, and... I hope that you can join me for the next one on The Enthusiast. As I say, I want to start this series' multi-episode arc, so we're going to crack on with that next time. I'll finish off for now by saying that I've been and still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys safe times, extra safe times right now. Stay safe, everybody, and I'll catch you very soon. Take care, guys. Thanks very much for joining me here today, and goodbye for now.